convictions, living within the guidelines or the guardrails of your personal convictions. And I'd like to have the house lights up if I could again. Thanks. Thomas Jefferson quoted this, In matters of principle, stand like a rock. In matters of taste, swim with the current. John Quincy Adams said, Always stand on principle even if you stand alone. And come to think about it, the heroes that we have, our cultural heroes, our personal heroes, are usually people of great conviction. I love this quote from Martin Luther because it seems to say it all. He said this, Unless I'm convinced by Scripture and plain reason... I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they've contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God, help me. For to go against conscience is neither safe nor right. It's a great quote on the critical road of of these guardrails in our lives. And, and I want to wrap up our series just kind of, uh, if I can, taking the mirror and putting it up in front of your face and challenging you on what convictions you are adopting in your life. What are convictions anyway? We have a conviction, I think, when we're thoroughly convinced or personally persuaded that something is true. I think they have to be more than personal preferences or, or, or just kind of opinions, subjective opinions. They involve these, these strong beliefs from the inside out that manifest themselves in action. A conviction, I think, is a strong belief that you have obediently made part of your life and practice. You could not refer to something as a conviction if it was something that you were easily willing to change your mind on. This guy's wearing a flower on his lapel, and, and his friend answered, uh, uh, why? That, that, that's a chrysanthemum, chrysanthemum, isn't it? And, and, and the guy said, no, it looks like a rose to me. And he said, no, no, you're wrong. It's a chrysanthemum. Well, if it's a chrysanthemum, then spell it. So the guy said, K-R-I-S, no, no, K-H-R-Y, no, maybe it's C-R, by golly, he said, you're right, it is a rose. And sometimes with our convictions, we think we have this conviction about something, but when we're pressed, when it, when it moves beyond convenience, when we really have to stand alone on the issue, we find out that we don't feel so strongly about it. Warren Buffett referred to this in, in Life and Business, and he said that we need each of us to have an internal yardstick. It's kind of a way to evaluate or, or measure whatever we're considering making a part of our life and practice. So I think the guardrail analogy works really well. We need some parameters in our lives that help dictate the path that that we will or will not take. A guy by the name of Elijah Lovejoy in in early America was a a rather opinionated and rebellious uh, minister and school teacher. He became an American hero because he left the ministry to go back in to printing because he was so incensed by the slave trade. In fact, they claim that the Civil War might have been averted if, if Elijah Lovejoy had been more successful in getting his message out. Apparently, after observing a lynching one day, Lovejoy decided that he was going to forever commit himself to fighting slavery. And history records that 
that there was mob action against him. There were threats and attempts on his life, but it didn't stop him at all. He said, if by compromise is meant that I should cease from my duty, I cannot make it. I fear God more than I fear man. Crush me if you will, but I shall die at my post. And four days after saying that, he did at the hands of another mob. They, they, they murdered him. And in fact, the people that did the deed were not even indicted. One of them actually became the mayor of the town. And you'd think, Elijah Lovejoy's convictions died with him. But history also records that there was one young man that observed the process and was deeply moved by Lovejoy's martyrdom. He was eventually elected to the Illinois legislature. His name was Abraham Lincoln. Convictions are something that that are held so strongly and so tightly that literally you would protect them with your life. Now, certainly not all of our convictions are nurtured by our faith, or shall I say, stem from our faith. If, if you're a person of faith, most of your strongly held convictions probably are somewhat related to it. But people also have all kinds of perspectives on things, political perspectives. Their position on everything from fracking to genetically modified crops, energy consumption, wearing clothing made in sweatshops. People have, have ideas and thoughts and convictions on a lot of items, and they're at least informed or fueled sometimes by your faith. But I think we need to ask the question this morning, are convictions really biblical? And I think they are, at, at least in the way we commonly use the word. If we use it correctly, we use conviction to describe the work of our conscience in making a personal decision of right or wrong in areas specifically not detailed in Scripture. Your conviction is your convinced conscience. You're convinced that there are some things that you simply must do and some things that you simply cannot do. So I crafted for our purposes today a definition of conviction, and I want to put it up there for you, viewed in the light of what the Holy Spirit and the Word are saying to you personally, convictions become a set of deeply held individual principles that guide and protect you as you seek to walk with God. That's what I want you to think about this morning. What's going on in that department in your life? Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the second verse, we always thank God for you. He's talking about these people he was praying for and thanking God for. We remember your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power and the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Deep conviction. And maybe there's no other kind of conviction. Maybe there's no other kind of conviction than deep conviction. A teacher at Vanderbilt, her name was, his name was uh, Madison Serrett, and he was giving an exam, and he always began his exam with these words. Today I'm giving two examinations, one in trigonometry and the other in honesty. He says, I hope you will pass them both, but if, if you must fail one, fail trigonometry, for there are many good people in the world who cannot pass trigonometry, but there are no good people in the world who cannot pass the examination of honesty. In the area of conviction, there are some parts of our lives and our thinking that are more important than others. And over the course of your living, 
and you're walking with Christ, convictions are what emerge in your life as guardrails, as guiding principles. They guide you, they direct you, they protect you on the journey of life. Now, I want to qualify this a little bit as you think about this this morning. I think convictions are good, obviously. I think they're necessary. I think they're biblical. But the, 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 the frustrating thing about convictions and people of conviction is sometimes conviction muscles its way into the wrong place in your life. It can strong arm out things like love. You're familiar with people that are so that help that have such a strong conviction about something that in their way of communicating it and living it out it's it's as if they've forgotten Christ's command to love Oswald Chambers says this a disciple of Jesus Christ is devoted to a person not to principles so anytime we talk about anything that kind of smacks of the rules and the regulations that you and I decide that we want to live our life by the parameters that we want to live within the, the spiritual box that becomes our worldview. Anytime you begin talking about that, brings up this, this caution that it's so easy to move across the line and begin transgressing the law of love and, and, and having our first allegiance to our opinion and not to Christ. I also think it's tricky to talk about conviction these days in the spiritual or religious arena. You know, you can have strong convictions on the environment and david suzuki will bat, will pat you on the back you can be intensely persuaded about your particular political view and wolf blitzer or some other political commentator will will commend you for being clear you could be dogmatic and unbending in your opinion and your convictions in the sports world and you might steal don cherry's job But if you dare to express your convictions in the area of the Christian faith, then things like The View or The Daily Show will kind of chew you up and spit you out. We don't live in a culture where it's popular to be convictional or opinionated about the things that relate to our faith. We know that the Scripture teaches also that convictions help us in a couple of specific ways. One is is it tells us that convictionless people are identified as being indecisive. Famous verse in James 1, verse 6. You, you, you know this one. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. They're double-minded and unstable. A convictionless person can be, can be double-minded and unstable, blown like the waves of the sea. The Bible also teaches that convictionless people tend to be immature people, or let me put it this way, that people who are spiritually mature tend to be people who have conviction about their faith. Ephesians 4, verse 14, then will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth of life, love, the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And so indecisiveness and immaturity tend to be the marks of people who never incorporate any thinking about their personal convictions in their life. 
And you could argue also that you shouldn't have to talk about conviction in areas where the Bible is specific. We don't really need to to add anything to what the Bible says about some things. Murder another person. Steal another woman's possessions. Make love to another man's wife. There are things that the Bible is very clear about. You don't need to kind of try to develop your own conviction about those things. You just need to decide to, to obey and live what the Bible commands. But convictions kind of uh, rise in their level of importance in those areas that tend to be maybe a little more gray, that, that, that need to be applied to a particular uh, circumstance. So what does the Bible teach us about living a life of conviction? It all relates to this issue of growing in your knowledge of Christ and in your relationship with God. And I want to list a few of the ways the Bible does that or put them there for you this morning. The first one is the Bible uh, stress, stressing the importance of developing discernment in your life. Discernment through the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the, that the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit They think they're foolishness because they can't understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. It seems that that there is a level of discernment, an ability to decide, to choose, to evaluate that accompanies the growth of God's presence in your life. The more you give way to God and the more you get to know Him, the more you walk with Him, the more highly developed your ability to discern good from from evil. Secondly, the Bible speaks, and it's no surprise that Paul would be the guy that thinks about this, about the the importance of being fully persuaded. That, that, That when you live a life of conviction, you need to be a person who is fully persuaded by what you think, being fully persuaded in his own mind. Also, the issue of a clear heart. And John speaks of doing those things in which our heart condemns us not. 1 John 3.20 speaks of that. Apparently, if there are things that you can avoid where your heart condemns you not, then obviously there are things you can do where your heart will condemn you. And so the Bible says you need to walk with him in a way that your heart is not condemned. 1 Thessalonians 5 talks about testing all things and holding fast to the good. About, about evaluating something. About, about setting up the thing you're thinking about or considering or, or being drawn towards, a decision that you may make or be considering making, setting that up against what you know the Scripture teaches. It's back to this discernment thing. And this is the thing that you have and your, your teenager doesn't have. The ability, the understanding, the spiritual maturity to test things and to, to hold fast to the good. Bible also, letter E, speaks about choosing not just the good, but the best. Crops up in a number of places in Scripture. Philippians 1, the ninth verse, speaks about it. So you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. It, it's, 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 the, it's the call of Christ not just to kind of live close to the line, but for him to, develop, to, to lead you in the way that you maximize and become the very best person that you can be. Romans 14 speaks about this issue of conviction when it says, do not do what you feel is wrong. Blessed is the one, the Bible says in that verse, who does 
not condemn himself by what he approves. You suppose that we will ever be faced with the kind of choices that that Christian people had to make in in pre-war Germany or Germany during the war when they began to realize exactly what Hitler was doing. I'm sure there there was a time they were unaware of what was really happening. But there were probably people there who at some point began to understand really what was happening and and, and suddenly their, their conviction, their belief on something, for them to hold that conviction or hold that belief meant that they would risk their life. Blessed are the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. And then the Bible speaks also about just flat out learning to distinguish between good and evil. Hebrews 5 says, solid food is for the mature, meaning the spiritually mature, who have by constant use trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. That's kind of the thought that was running. I watched the Grammys last week. Some of you probably did. If you didn't, you probably read about it. And when I was watching at the end of the Grammys, the, the wedding that was being kind of patamined and Queen Latifah and Madonna and, and the set had the had the big stained glass windows, kind of the church motif. And, and here was this wedding being performed, a Macklemore song there. Uh, I was just sitting there thinking just about the, uh, the, the, the capacity we have to lose the ability to distinguish between good and evil. And the Bible says we need to be that way. H, letter H, and lastly on this, Acts 24.16 raises the issue of maintaining a clear conscience. Always striving to have a clear conscience before God and man. Well, what, what, is, what are all these things? These are, the, these are the ways that as a follower of Christ, you begin to learn to live and walk the way that God is calling you to live and walk as he works in you in these ways. And of course, conscience isn't, isn't a perfect uh, policeman on this. The Bible says our conscience can be weak. It even refers uh, in First Timothy to our conscience being seared like by a hot iron. Your conscience can be kind of burned or quenched or seared. Conscience isn't just the only uh, way you evaluate that. But, but the point, I think, is that when you are fed a steady diet of the Word of God and you, you habitually, over the long haul, begin to submit to God and and ask him to help guide you in your circumstances, you get to the point where your conscience begins uh, really reflecting what the voice of God would be in your life. And so you may be called upon to, to develop convictions in all kinds of areas of your life. We've already talked about the conviction of, of believing that the word of God ought to be a part of your life on a regular basis. The conviction to read the word, to be in the word. People have convictions about devoting their day off to their family and not their job. Remember a friend of mine that who told me about his father who had a body shop and the shop was right in the backyard and he said, my dad just had to walk out of the house to go to work. And he said he could have worked all the time, but he said he had a real conviction about, about leaving the shop at five o'clock and being home and sitting down for supper with us. And he said, he said, now that I'm grown, I know how hard it must have been for him to, to feel the pull of going out there and getting, going into that shop on his day off. But he said he had a conviction about spending his, his day off with his family. People, people who give 
regularly and faithfully to God's work. They do it because of a conviction that they feel. It's, it's, it's an inner compulsion that, that their tithe belongs to God. People who take time for prayer do it because of an inner conviction. My good buddy was visiting his, his son who he'd raised and, and his son and daughter, he'd raised them in a Christian home and they'd had grace all the time. And he said, I, I traveled a long distance and I went to visit my son or daughter and we sat down at the table. He said, I turned to my little grandkids and said, okay, let's say the blessing. He said, my, little, my, my grandkids kind of looked at me like I had two heads. What's that? There comes a point where the things that you do have got to stem out of not your father's conviction or your grandfather's conviction, but your conviction. People refrain from certain foods or drinks. People have convictions that they develop about never speaking ill of another person. People who have the guts to seek conviction, to seek forgiveness from somebody, do it because they have a conviction about that. People live specific lifestyles. They abandon certain relationships. People have a a way of thinking about Sabbath and and the day of rest and, and how they observe that. People develop convictions about avoiding sexually charged movies or, or television or reading material. People live with convictions about preserving the environment or taking time out of their life to, to serve in a worthy cause or avoiding some kind of negative influence or they have a conviction about the need for them to protest injustice or to assist those in need or personal convictions about consuming less or contributing more. And what I'm trying to get to you this morning is the fact that that as followers of Christ, we need to be the kind of people that are allowing the Spirit of God to lead us and guide us to become people of conviction, to, to develop these guardrails in our lives that help us pursue a meaningful life and protect us from offending God or ruining our testimony. I think the important thing is that it's a choice. It's a personal choice. I love 2 Corinthians 1.24. I came across this verse this week. This is in the New Living Translation. But that does not mean we want to dominate you by telling you how to put your faith into practice. We want to work together with you so that you will be full of joy, for it is by your own faith that you stand firm. I love what that verse says. It's not, it's not a pastor's job to stand up here and... and and inform you about what your conviction ought to be. We, we can't be trying to tell you, you should think this and you should think that. You, as a follower of Christ, it's beholding on you to rise up and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to become people who have developed some things that you believe. Let me ask you this morning, is there anything wrong for you? Is there anything that you feel compelled to be or say or do that maybe... Other people aren't feeling that way, but, but as you live and walk with God, he's compelled you to be that way. How hard do you work on building your own faith? How seriously do you take your faith? The Bible says that, that our, faith, our faith is the victory that overcomes the, word, the world. And so the Bible is full of examples of people who live by conviction. And you could think of them this morning. If we had a flip chart here and you could start calling them out, Abraham is certainly one of them. Abraham lived by the conviction. And it was a conviction, as I, as I thought of Abraham this week, it was rooted in the object of his faith. It says that Abraham believed God. He was convicted to trust God in no matter what he said. 
Romans 4.21, he was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. That's why he takes Isaac up onto the mountain. He was convinced that God was able, that God was faithful. We think of the Apostle Paul. And, and as I thought of Paul, I thought, that here's someone with a conviction that was rooted in the power of Paul's ability to commit to Christ and Christ's ability to commit to him. Paul was no pushover. He was the kind of person who said, if I decide I'm going to do this, get out of the way because I'm going to do it. But it was kind of a combination of those two things. Timothy uh, 1 verse 12, 1 Timothy, I know whom I have believed and am convinced or persuaded that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him. What I entrust to him, God is able to help me with that. It's a two-way street. A conviction rooted in the power of my commitment to him and his commitment to me. And then we think of Joseph. And I, I was trying to think, how do you describe Joseph's conviction? And I described it as a conviction rooted in what God would disapprove or approve. Remember when he's on, under temptation. Potiphar's wife, Pastor Tim calls her Potiphar. He's in the midst of temptation. And he determines he's not going to give in to temptation and in the little speech he makes there, Genesis chapter 39, 9, he says, How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He was conscious that he didn't want to sin against his master, but more than that, conscious that he didn't want to sin against God. His convictions were rooted in what God would approve or disapprove. And I think that's a significant one. And you see the illustration there with Joseph that that... that the context of that statement is in the arena of sexual sin. And it seems like the convictions that we have about the things that God would approve or disapprove, they become most significant in some of those type of areas. Things like sexual purity. Things like personal finance. Things like our, our personal ethics and morality. Those are the areas where an understanding or a conviction that's rooted in what God approves or disapproves is important. Moses is another example. And I, I described Moses this way. He had a conviction rooted in the long view. He wasn't seeing the short story. He was seeing the long view. And Hebrews 11.25 refers to Moses and says that he chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Interesting Interesting path that Moses chose when he could have enjoyed all the, the bounty of the king's palace. But he chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He understood that when it comes to matters of truth, that you have to have the long view. You have to think in terms of the eternal perspective. And then Daniel is probably the ultimate biblical example of conviction. It shows up in a number of places in Daniel's life that you're already thinking about. And I, I describe Daniel as a conviction rooted in my worldview. Daniel was able to function in the culture that he lived in because he already had pre-decided what his worldview was, where he stood. And he refused to compromise his convictions in the face of an antagonistic Babylonian culture. He was living in the midst of something that was totally opposed or different to the things he valued. And he already had pre-decided 
that he was not going to bow to a worldview that was not his own. And you know, our situation isn't far off of Daniel's reality, really. Here we are, we live in a culture where we're surrounded by people who don't give God his rightful place. We we live in a world where people don't accept or believe uh, that God's word is truth. They, 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 They believe that your views are yours and my views are mine and it's all about just kind of subjective truth and, and, uh, and relative truth. And it's, you know, you, it, truth is great. You need your truth. I need my truth. You know what I'm driving at there? We live in a world where the Bible says that, that uh, the people are spiritually blind. They're under the dominion of the evil one. So, you know, they're, they're, not, even, they're not even being motivated by the same things that, we, that we're being motivated on. The Bible also speaks about the fact that we are outsiders in this world, that, that the, this world is not our home, that we're like pilgrims or strangers on this earth looking for a city, the Bible says, whose builder and maker is God. We're, we're, we're described in Scripture as being aliens or exiles on our way to a place that, that Jesus has prepared for us. And, and the Bible says, don't be conformed to this world. You see what I'm, I'm getting at there, that this issue of, 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 what, of where you land on your personal convictions is very, very important because you have to understand who you are and who you aren't. I love the, uh, the testimony of Jim Caviezel. I think that's how you say his name. He's the actor that starred in The Passion of the Christ. And uh, he's an outspoken follower of Christ. Catholic man. And uh, came across some stuff that talked about his pro-life stance. And he's been outspokenly pro-life. And he had a close friend who... Uh, who kind of got in his face and said, if you're so pro-life, then why don't you adopt a, a, a child with a physical or a mental disability? And when Caviezel and his wife went to China, they eventually adopted two orphans suffering from brain tumors. In fact, the friend, I think the story goes, said, if you believe in pro-life so much and adoption so much, then you adopt kids with those kind of needs. And if you do that, then I'll adopt somebody. And Caviezel said, my friend reneged on his deal. He never did adopt anybody, but he said, we went on and adopted these two orphans. And he, he spoke about the, the journey of standing up for who he was and, or who he is and, and, uh, and what he believed and how tough. And he says, we took the harder road. He said, here's his quote, that's what faith is to me. It's action. It's, the, it's living the Samaritan. It's not the one who says he is. It's the one who does. It's about being the kind of person who lives your life out of conviction. I love to fish. I heard the crazy story of a couple of guys are out fishing. This guy came back with his boatload of fish and the game warden's been watching him and said, where are you finding all this fish? So he says, well, come on with me. I'll take you out and show you what, where I'm getting all these fish. So he and the game warden go out in the boat and suddenly the guy that was the successful fisherman, he pulls out a stick of dynamite and he lights it. And uh, the warden, you know, starts hollering, hey, you can't do that, you can't fish with dynamite. The fisherman just tosses the lighted stick of dynamite over to the game warden and says, you going to holler or are you going to start fishing? And I read that and I thought, you know, that's pretty much what I wanted to say to people this morning. 
is what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with this issue of guardrails and guidelines in your life? It's one thing to think about them, talk about them, but the real deal is how you incorporate that in your life. I was listening to the, I'm going to call the worship team out, I was listening to the Daily Audio Bible the other morning coming into work, and it was the passage just previous to, it's, it's, it's been, of course, through Genesis and Exodus this, this month in the Old Testament. I love Genesis and Exodus. And uh, Brian Harden was commenting on, Ab- uh, on Moses standing before the burning bush. And, he, and, and boy, it just jumped out at me. It hit me really hard. It was, I was listening to that this week. He said, he, said, uh, he said, I think that next to the fall of man... Moses in front of the burning bush is one of the saddest accounts in all of Scripture because it said, here's Moses, and, and Almighty God is appearing to him through the miracle of the burning bush. And he says to Moses, I have a job for you to do. And Moses says, can't you get somebody else? And I don't know what it is that God's calling you to do or to be. But my prayer is that when he calls me and speaks into my life and that when he speaks into your life, that we won't be people who say, couldn't you get somebody else? But we're willing to be and do and become the kind of people that he calls us to be. Conviction. God bless you.